But those early years were really concentrated around not only training printers and developing a mechanism to do that, but also kind of restoring the industry itself. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Diana Gaston, director of the Tamarind Institute. We talk about how one becomes the director of an internationally renowned printmaking enterprise in the first place, the ambitions of the Institute's founder, June Wayne, to save the medium of lithography, and if it worked, what kind of research is done at Tamarind, and the importance of limestone in a plate litho world. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get set in stone with Diana Gaston. Hi, Diana. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks. Thank you for joining me. I have, of course, known and admired Tamarind for pretty much as long as I can remember being in the art world and particularly in the print world that I don't remember a time before Tamarind. (laughs) And now I'm in the situation where now I live just up the road, which is really exciting. So I've got to visit it in person. And so I'm really happy that we're going to have a chance to learn a little bit more about it from you and your role there and the place it has not only, I think, in the print ecosystem, but in the contemporary art ecosystem of the United States. It's got a profile. Yes. Well, thanks for thanks so much for your interest. I, I think it, it is one of these institutions that I think people do, is, if they're interested in print history or, 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 or printmakers themselves, it's Tamron's just kind of one of those kind of cornerstones, I think, of the of the community. Absolutely. It's been that way for a long time. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I had Brandon and Valpuri on. And so we got to do right. this deep dive on the education side of what Tamron does, which of course is one important arm. And so I'm really glad that today, I think we can maybe do a little bit more history, more eye in the sky kind of view of what Tamarind is. So if anyone's super interested in the educational side, you can go back to that episode and hear the wonderful Brandon and Valkyrie. And I think this one will be really good too. So before we get into all of that, would you please introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure. I'm uh, Diana Gaston. I'm the director at Tamarind. I started here in 2016. So I've been here just a few years in in light of my predecessor, Marge Devon, who was here for 30 years. It seems like just a very brief period of time. I actually started my professional career 
at the University of New Mexico Art Museum. I was the curator of prints and photographs there for a, a brief time in the late 80s, but it gave me a, a chance to really learn the Tamarind archive and history. The archive is housed by the University Art Museum when when Tamarind relocated from Los Angeles to Albuquerque. The the archive was was formed within within the University Art Museum, and so they have two impressions of every print Tamarind has pulled, and it, it gave me a chance to really study the history, but also the archive. I mean, there's an mm-hmm. amazing ephemeral archive of of letters and photographs, and and just the the inner workings of of, of Tamarind, and so I, I really kind of just fell in love with the the story of Tamarind. And then went on to do, I, I, my background is in prints and photographs, so I've, I've always been kind of a print photo curator. I've worked at a number of public and, and private institutions. Most recently was, was working as a corporate curator in Boston and had a chance to work with a number of contemporary artists. So that, I think that kind of prepared me for some of, the, some of the collaborative work we do here. But yeah, so I've been here since 2016, and um, we are located right on Route 66 on Central and Stanford at the University of New Mexico. Beautiful. And then where did you grow up, and what role did art play in that part of your life? Oh, going way back. Yes, I grew up in Missouri. I was born in in Seattle, but, but grew up in St. Louis and Columbia, Missouri. My parents always took me to museums for the probably the first 10 years probably dragged me to museums but it just was part of part of our I guess just part of our upbringing so and and I've always had an interest in in photography and and works on paper and um, probably found my way to a print room in in college the University of Kansas in Lawrence and I really do credit that program with the direction my my career took it. I I knew early on that I wanted to work with objects and art history of course prepared me for that but I I knew I wanted to to work in a museum setting. So I was fortunate to have internships, NEA internships with the the print room at the University of Kansas that was at the time the the collection was maintained by the curator of prints and the curator of photographs who also had teaching appointments and they were also my primary professors. So I was really steeped in, in not only the history, but also just the kind of day-to-day life of a curator as part of my training. And then I had a chance to work at just briefly, I was at the Smithsonian, the National Museum of American Art as an intern. And you, you look back at those opportunities, how, how, how impactful they were not I'm not really knowing it at the time, but you know the it, it it's not uncommon for interns to ironically have the most time with collections mm-hmm. you know the the further you the further you advance in your field, the more administrative it becomes. So I look back on those days of being left alone in a room to catalog hundreds and hundreds of photographs, and it just sounds like a dream now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of hands-on experience as part of my training and then ultimately went into curatorial work. Yeah. I was an intern at the Smithsonian, oh, you the were. portrait gallery. Oh yes. Well, those are adjoining. Are they? Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. yeah. I think it was like the portrait gallery mm-hmm. and the Smithsonian yeah. American 
museum and and so I was in the vertical files. That was yes. a big part of my job. And so talking about that that physicality and that materiality, I was filing away exhibition announcements or letters that had been donated this physical archive of these artists' careers and lives. And as I just completely connected with what you said, because I'm sure, you know, none of my bosses were doing that. They were on their computers all day. And I got to have the little thrill of seeing this ephemera from these really big artists. It was great. Exactly. No, there's nothing like, there's nothing like reading through letters when you're trying to parse history and parse what was happening and what was important at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's great. I love it. So what do you think it was about prints and photographs, but maybe particularly prints given where you are now that you thought, okay, I can make a career out of this, you know, not necessarily oil paintings, ceramics, all the other things we get, but the, the works on paper, the multiple, what drew you to them? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a great question. I, I, I wish I had a, a well thought out answer for that. I, I've always been drawn to works on paper. There's something about the character of the paper, I guess the delicacy of it, the resiliency of it, mm-hmm. especially when you look at a, a histor- an historic collection and you think that this this pristine sheet has made it through <laughs> decades, if not centuries, and, and yeah. that's kind of uh, astonishing. I guess I've I've always been interested in the process as much as we we try to expand the dialogue here at Tamarind beyond the process, I think that probably is what initially drew me to it. And the parallel histories of, of print and, and photo, they just really seem to speak volumes to the history and the cultural history and the, and the social history that they are part of in a way that I, I just found more, more compelling, more immediate mm-hmm. than, than maybe painting or sculpture there's just something so direct and so, and also so intimate about works on paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and I've always been drawn to works on paper. You know, it's, 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 I'm not, I'm not even sure why <laughs> but I'll, <laughs> I'll cross, I'll cross a room, I'll cross a gallery to, to see a small drawing or a small print. So. Absolutely. I'm yeah. always pausing TV shows and movies when I see a print in the background. <laughs> which I feel like in in tvs and movies prints are hanging in people's homes much more than they are in real life I've noticed and I think that it might be just because set design is easier for them in some way to to get a multiple up there but exactly Exactly. yeah. yeah yeah I love what you were saying about being drawn to the process and then also Tamron trying to expand the conversation beyond the process because right I agree that the process is so, it is so interesting and it is so compelling. And printmaking does have this theatrical moment of the reveal that not really any other method can rival maybe photography in the dark room, but it can also, I think, bog down dialogue around what printmaking is. And if you look at books that are sort of overviews, you might see something about painting going into the the history and the why and all this sort of thing. And then all they have space for is just kind of explaining what lithography is. And then we have to move on into so like it, just getting over that hump of education of understanding process, I think holds it back too. Yeah. 
It's true. And, you know, we, we try to protect the artists that we're collaborating with from getting too bogged down in the language or the understanding of it. And of course we're going to explain what's happening if, if, if they're interested, mm-hmm. but the, the printers do a remarkable job of keeping a lot of that inside as they're working with an artist. They don't, they don't, they don't need to really explain why something's going to be particularly difficult or, or they want them, they want the artist to understand the basic premise and the basic handling of materials but they also try to just free up the free up the technical concerns that the artist might have it is it is always comical when an artist who has not worked in printmaking or lithography will come to work with us and we have a long history of working with artists who have no printmaking background and that's really by design you know we mm-hmm. we love the happy accidents and we love the fresh approach that an artist who is not steeped in the in the process might might bring but the inevitably artists will come and they'll say well i've been reading about lithography and i think i understand it but <laughs> the, the printers have deep and very technical discussions amongst themselves but if, if i ask like why did this go wrong or what happened here or how, how would you have handled this differently the printers inevitably say oh it's it's really complicated <laughs> like they just don't even want to get into it so yeah, but I, I do I do really credit our our master printers Felpery Rimling and and Brandon Gunn for keeping the keeping the dialogue around around the art making and around the ideas. And we do of course lead with some discussion of prints and how they're made in the collaborative process. But in the end, we we hope that we're making work that's compelling and stands on its own and and has has an internal life yeah. so yeah that's such an important distinction i think because printmakers and people who love printmaking they can really get sucked into the minutia and for any process i think certainly lithography certainly etching where you just get sucked into how this was made but i love that idea that there's that commitment to making an art object that stands alone without context I think seems right. really significant. Right. Yeah. Right. And even going back to, to June Wayne's founding meant that, that was the, the proposal that she submitted to the Ford foundation in 1959 that articulated what she envisioned for the workshop, why it was, why it was imperative that, that this funding be, be given to, to support this, this, this undertaking the the final point after all of these all of these kind of steps and and objectives for the workshop the final point was that the most important thing was to to create a body of exceptional work you know that mm. that was that was really in the end what she wanted to do yeah i feel like that's a perfect segue into asking you to actually speak a bit to the history of tamarind and sure. how it came to be because we didn't get a chance to get into that at all with Brandon and Valpri. And it is, I think, a really fascinating story and the what June Wayne took on and successfully accomplished is, for me, one of the most interesting stories in contemporary art history. Yeah, it's, it is a great story. It really is. It, it's, it's interesting, too, to look at the long history, like Tamron's been in, in existence for 62 years now, but I think that first decade still defines us in so many ways. I think we're still 
pursuing many of the founding objectives that June Wayne set out for Tamarind. So it was founded in Los Angeles on Tamarind Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember exactly how June Wayne phrased it, but it was something like, well, I can put a lot of time into coming up with a name for this workshop. But in the end, if it, if it, if it becomes an important institution or if it becomes an important workshop, the name will speak for itself. You know, the, the name will mean something. So she didn't put a lot of time into thinking about the name, but she did, I think, come up with a brilliant idea for a chop. And the chop is the alchemist symbol for stone that is stylized, has been kind of simplified and stylized a bit. So yeah, June Wayne, I think, was as an artist in Los Angeles at the time. This is the days of Ferris Gallery and and kind of a and, and kind of a boys' club of, mm-hmm. of very prominent artists and dealers, and I think she was kind of wanting to make a name for herself, but also really wanting to pursue this medium that she loved and felt that she had to travel great distances to to be able to make prints. And while there were printmakers in Los Angeles and certainly printmakers in New York, you, know, you think of Robert Blackburn and ULAE, it wasn't, it wasn't really accessible. And there weren't many master printers. There weren't many artists who were making prints. So at the time, she was, she was trying to revive this art form, not only in its technical process and making sure that, that there were printers who were skilled and, and knowledgeable of the process, but also trying to engage artists around the idea of making prints and working in a collaborative setting. So it's it was not only the it was not only the technical aspect of lithography that she was trying to restore, but also a mindset around mm-hmm. collaboration. And collaborative printmaking is something that Tamarind is 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 continues to be informed by and and certainly has been one of its one of its great contributions to the art form is the idea of bringing an artist and a printer together to make something. And that, that doesn't take away from an artist who wants to work privately or, or independently. We certainly honor whatever an artist, whatever their working method is or whatever their, their approach might be. We, we will, we will meet them that way. I think, I think in those early years, Tamron was probably pretty rigid about how, what a print, what defined a print and, and what was acceptable as a print. There's great stories about Bruce Connor and Ed Ruscha working in, in the Los Angeles workshop and, and I think really challenging some of those notions of originality and authorship and what a print might be. And I think we we embrace those opportunities with artists who challenge us and uh-huh. push us and make us think about the medium maybe a little bit differently. So the history was, was June Wayne, who was the, the, the founding director and the one who, who initiated the, the proposal to the Ford Foundation. Looking back on it, it is quite remarkable <laughs> that, that an independent person, a, a woman at the time, would be given this, this large sum of money to to develop a really unprecedented model for a workshop. 
And she brought on Clinton Adams as the assistant director and Garrow and Trejan as the first technical director. And the three of them were all artists and had great respect for artists. And I think that that also informed how the workshop was set up. But those early years were really concentrated around not only uh, training printers and developing a mechanism to do that, developing a program to train printers, yeah. but also kind of restoring the, the materials, the industry itself, making sure that there were appropriate inks and papers and presses and stones. And so it took a lot of doing just to, just to gather the workshop materials and uh, we can we can talk a little bit later maybe about how how that how that continued to shape the workshop when we moved to Albuquerque but yeah in, in Los Angeles they were there for a, a solid decade for 10 years and the grant then reached its conclusion but the Ford Foundation supported Tamarin's move from Los Angeles to Albuquerque and it, it was a pretty decisive move, <laughs> move yeah. from an industrial creative center to the, the high desert in, in, in a university setting. But it was because Clinton Adams and Garrow and Trejan, who had been two of the founding or, or rather founding members of Tamarind Lithography Workshop, were, were at that time teaching at the University of New Mexico. And so that's why it came to Albuquerque. Mm. and changed its name from Tamron Lithography Workshop to Tamron Institute. In some ways, I missed that, the clarity of that. Yeah. Name. It just said what it was. But I think the name itself just speaks volumes to how it changed when it moved from its setting in Los Angeles, you know, working out of June Wayne's home to a, an academic setting, which became very important, documentation continued to be important, but was fully embraced and scholarship around, around the history and around the medium, I think are defining characteristics, characteristics of how the workshop changed when it, when it moved to the university. Yeah. I, I think something that I think about a lot and that I've kind of been, I don't know, I guess picked up along the way of being in the, the print world and thinking about Tamarind and, and June Wayne and that founding and, how it was so radical, I feel like, to really revitalize this medium in the way that she set out to do. And the fact that there are hundreds of Tamron Master printers that are all out there, highly trained, understanding this medium backwards and forwards, and that they come from all over the world – and then they they go back to Finland and South Korea and the Netherlands. And it really, I've, I think I've said before when trying to explain Tamron to people, <laughs> using the Johnny Appleseed metaphor and the same thing with lithography. And, and I didn't even realize what you were just speaking to, that part of that history was also making sure that there were inks and materials and, of course, b- like building up the foundation that's necessary for a thriving and healthy lithography ecosystem. And the fact that it just really seems to have worked <laughs> and like yeah. now is, is just a beautiful story. And I think such one of ambition and gall and 
commitment that is is as I said a really really interesting one. It's so true. No, it's 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 uh, with with a few exceptions. I, I would say that the founding objectives are still very much of our mm. at the core of our of our mission: training yeah. printers and sustaining a community around printmaking and engaging artists and making great prints, but also sharing the research. And I think that was that was really radical at the time. Printers, the idea of, of not only documenting the process, but sharing technique and sharing, yeah. sharing best practices. That's something that has defined Tamron from the very beginning. And, and, and that was, I, I think that the founders recognized that, that, that that community would have to change to, in order for this medium to sustain itself. And mm. I, I, I think you can still see that in play today with exactly as you said, that there's an amazing network of Tamron trained printers who share information and, and, and share research and share resources. You know, where are you getting this ink? I can't find this. How is this yeah. working? You know? So yeah, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing network and ecosystem, as you say, I think the yeah. ecosystem was something that, Jun Wayne recognized from the very beginning that it would take printers, artists, and a print community to sustain the the effort. Yeah. That's very true today. And you spoke a couple times to research, which Mm -hmm. I really would love to hear more about that. And and particularly after 62 years, what does research look like now? Because I'm sure it was very different from what was being undertaken six decades ago. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. It would probably be better answered by some of our printers, but <laughs> as part of our program for the master printer training, we have kind of a two tier program. One is uh, it starts with a one year printer training program that's very very rigorous and teaches skill and technical skill and chemistry and collaboration and best practices. And then our students go on to do all kinds of things. They, they go on to teach, they go on to re- return to their own, their own creative practice as artists. Sometimes they're going back for a graduate degree in printmaking. And, and of course, many of them go on to, to work as professional printers, but for that second year, what we call an apprenticeship, we choose one or maybe two printers to stay on for a second year working closely in the professional workshop with Valpurie Remling. They're, they're in there and the, they're, they're working very closely with her on a day-to-day basis and additioning and collaborating with artists, but they're also conducting a pretty intensive research project. And at the end of that second year apprenticeship, they, they submit a paper. And we have just started making those available online. We have a number of, of previous printers, research papers on, on our website. But if you come to our, if you come to Tamarind and visit our library, we have just shelves of black notebooks with very technical research. It's not anything I've really delved into, but the printers, I see them up there reading through these, these research papers. And sometimes it's revisiting earlier 
techniques or processes that maybe were initially part of the commercial aspect of, of litho, trying to figure out how they could embrace certain certain techniques or practices into into collaborative printmaking. So they're they're kind of looking back at the process and and also like our most recent apprentice, she just kind of did this deep dive into the chemistry, but mm. wrote it in such a way that a younger a younger printer might respond to. She she updated some of the language, she but she also just kind of broke it down so that so that it's a bit more accessible. So we've had we've had everything from looking at at very uh, very technical chemical reactions to the history of women in printmaking to the history of chemistry or not the history of chemistry but our understanding of chemistry and and how it how it how it reacts in the in the lithographic process. But it's it's all. It, it, it frequently stems from a, a question or a problem in, in sourcing material or needing to test the test the, either the, the quality of a new ink or test a, a new a new pencil or product or the light fastness of, of an ink. So sometimes it's it has very practical applications. Sometimes it's more of an historical kind of in, yeah. inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. And so Tamarind has this education side, this research side, and then also a whole gallery side right. as well. And that Tamarind interacts with the commercial art world. Yes. Can you speak to that? Yes, it's it's a it's it's a definitely a hybrid workshop. I, I look at, at some of our colleagues who have just maybe one or two printers and they're doing everything we're doing. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. We're, we we are a complex a complex organism. <laughs> the, the school is the school and the training program is is really core to our entire mission, and the workshop that that is that is really the heart of the of the whole enterprise. But at at the end of the day, we we we're we are collaborating with contemporary artists and hopefully extending the medium through their practice, through their interpretation. So a gallery is just the logical outcome mm-hmm. of that. And we are printers, publishers. So we, we, we define ourselves as printer publishers and it's the publishing arm is what supports the entire operation. So we are, Working with artists that, as I as I mentioned, will will hopefully move the medium forward, maybe challenge us in some way. But we're also interested in in participating in the in the contemporary in the contemporary practice of of art making. <laughs> that it's not yeah. that that we, we we hope that the work that we are creating can can be seen alongside any medium that an artist is, this is just one, one facet of their creative practice. And so artists like Rashad Newsom or Tara Donovan or Jeffrey Gibson is a good example, or Rose Simpson, like they've all made prints with us and all of their prints just sit beautifully with the rest of their creative practice. That's certainly our goal. And we, we, 
when we moved into this building in 2010, we, we were operating in a very small workshop, famously behind the Frontier Cafe. If anyone knows the Frontier in Albuquerque, it's, it's a landmark kind of restaurant. But when we moved into this space, the program really changed because of the building, because of its literal transparency, windows onto the street that you can walk by and look into the workshop, a large, a large gallery that we had not had before, certainly more storage space and more, more space for, for framing and just the, the whole gallery production, we, we had more space for it. So as a result, we were able to expand our, our gallery program. And we do participate in, in art fairs. We're pretty focused around the print community. So we always have a presence at IFPDA in New York. And we've been showing it in, in Miami, at Inc. Miami. It's, it's nice to be showing along our, alongside our colleagues in the, in the print world. But yeah, the, the, the gallery is a way for us to show what lithography can do. And, mm-hmm. and I think it, it's also a really important program for Albuquerque and for New Mexico, really yeah. bringing contemporary artists here to the state. We've, we've also worked, of course, with many, many artists who are rooted here. So we're, we're participating in the, in the larger art community through our gallery and through these residencies with, with artists. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there's something really significant in having the gallery aspect as a way to keep Tamarind and the artists and the work that's produced engaging with the broader art world. Yeah. And I think if you if you didn't have that, it could be easy for the program to kind of become siloed right. in the sense of there's so much to do just within education and just within research and not necessarily having an ongoing dialogue about actual reception of the work that's being produced and for the artists particularly how okay like how does my print practice fit in to my larger artistic practice which is always a really interesting question i think for artists particularly right. artists for instance like jeffrey gibson who you spoke to who does everything performance and sculpture and and all this sort of things in large scale installation. And, and then he has these beautiful, colorful beaded prints. So where does that fit in? And I think a large part of exploring where that fits in is understanding public reception. And so, Yeah. yeah, it's, I think that is a really valuable aspect to what Tamron brings. And I'm sure part of too, also why its profile is so high. Is That's, because it's not just a research institution behind an ivory tower. As you say, you're out there, you're you're in New York, you're at Miami. I saw Tamrind at Seattle Art Fair, the late, not so great Seattle Art Fair. <laughs> Only a couple of iterations, but you know, non-print fairs as well. I've I've seen Tamrind showing yeah, up. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's the ultimate calling card. It's it's it shows what we can do. And as, as rooted as our printers are in, in the making and in the, and in perfecting their technique and perfecting the skill, they ultimately want the work to compete in the world. You know, they want the work Mm -hmm. to be out there and, and there's, there's no better way to, yeah, to, to demonstrate a a very high standard of, of printing and, 
and 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 what the medium can bring than to than to compete in that arena. And yeah. so, yeah, I agree with you. If 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 we didn't have the gallery arm, I mean, it is it is in the end what what funds the educational program. All of our print sales really feed the the educational program, but it would be it would be a different workshop if we didn't have mm-hmm. that. If we weren't if we weren't also able to compete and able to participate in that very I'll just use compete again in that very yeah. competitive space because it is and and we are but we're also just seeing the the full life cycle of of a of a project of a creative endeavor with an artist you know we're seeing them come into a space that they're not really familiar with and work in a medium that they're not familiar with and 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 work in this kind of very supportive but removed way where they're they're handing their work off to to an artisan to interpret in terms of how the work is is realized but we're seeing that that whole creative process then we're seeing the production of the work that the additioning and the the very careful documentation of the addition and then we're seeing the signing and the chopping and mm-hmm. the framing and the shipping and we just see the entire process and there's something very rewarding about that and i think it's it's a it's a rare thing for a gallery to have that that immediacy with with the creative production of a piece. You know, it's 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 not a it's not a piece that we've pulled from the artist's studio or invited them to make for a show. It's a, it's it's a piece that we've made with them. So it's yeah. it's a different relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've seen what that means to people when they are interacting with Tamarind in a fair space and seeing the people who are in the booths communicate with such joy about how it was made. And again, you know, we talked earlier about getting bogged down in the technical stuff for sure, but I don't think you can't, you, you can't manufacture that, you know, you can't manufacture that excitement that you see in people's eyes when they were, alongside the creation yeah. of these works. That's yeah. just something you have to really be there for and have a really genuine love for the medium to Absolutely. be able to bring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel very privileged to, to witness that. Yeah. yeah. And so I was thinking as I was preparing for the talk about how you're, you're the fourth director as you spoke to in nearly in over 60 years and I feel like that's unusual. I feel like a lot of institutions yeah. will go through directors every two years, right, maybe, right. you know. And so I think that might speak to the real rewards that such a position offers, that it is something that people come to and stay in, in a way that is, I think, a bit rare in the art world. Yeah. And Kind of to that end, I'd love to hear you speak a bit to just what your actual role is. I know people here, director of Tamarind, it sounds very fancy and, and prestigious, but what does that mean? You know, what do you what do you do day to day? What do you keep an eye on? What are your responsibilities? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I I I do feel the 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 weight of that history. That, that, <laughs> that, you know, these the, the directors that preceded me had had their own great legacy and their own contribution. And you can really kind of break Tamron's history down into like the first decade was, was June Wayne at the helm. And she really defined the mission from day one and secured the, the funding and, and really delivered 
delivered on her promises for that first decade. And then the second decade with, with well, decade and a half with, with Clinton Adams at the helm, it, you know, he, he was an artist and, and certainly very, very knowledgeable about the, the process, but he was also a brilliant administrator and a great, a great scholar. Mm-hmm. And he, he really, he put Tamron in context with the larger history of, of printmaking and, uh, and built up an amazing collection of lithographs that are outside of Tamron that are housed at the, at the University Art Museum. And then Marge Devon in, in, in the next chapter of Tamarind, she brought a great international focus to the workshop and and was was an amazing ambassador really for Tamarind and and going going to other countries and and introducing the the program and and building up scholarship the scholarship fund and there's a actually a scholarship fund in her name with the idea of of making the training program more accessible and, mm-hmm. and, and really trying to make it a, a much more international program. I mean, when you first look at how Tamron was defined in the sixties, it was, it was really seen as an American program. And now I would say it's, it's, it's known internationally as much as it's known. For sure. So I, I think part of my job is protecting that legacy of just keeping mm-hmm. all of all of those values in place. We're, we're trying to formalize the printer training program within the university structure so that it's, it's a bit more protected. It's such a, it's such a unique program. It's such a, it's such an anomaly within the college of fine arts. Mm -hmm. And we have such a small core group of students. We, we can only, we can only accept eight students every year. And so it's, it is a, it is a a program that needs to be defined and protected again and again. And I guess I really day to day just try to protect the space, protect mm-hmm. the work that the, stu- that, the, that the students are doing, but also give the printers the space, the peace of mind, the materials, the, the freedom to produce what they want. And I'm, I hear these stories about how controlling, um, well, you know, Clinton. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I was trying to figure out if I could not say his name, but they were they were just very rigorous about how materials were being used and 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 really limited any kind of photoplate usage or or anything that wasn't drawn. Very very restrictive about color and numbers of numbers of runs and um, for better or worse, I I really leave a lot of that to the printers, and I think as a result we've we've in the last six years, seven years, we've, we've produced some really ambitious prints that are just gorgeous and colorful and complex and a bit larger in scale than some of the earlier work. So I think day to day, I'm, I'm, I'm really just trying to create a space where the printers can do their best work and mm. where artists feel supported and free to experiment. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's almost sounds like you have a, a job in a way where the very best thing can happen is almost that your work isn't noticed. Right. right. You know? <laughs> exactly. exactly. No, I yeah. like to be the man behind the curtain. You know, I like to be like pulling the strings from behind and, and letting the prince really sing and let the rest of the staff have more of a public presence. And, and, and that, 
I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that there are other directors like that, but that's just, that's just kind of my, my personality and, and what I bring to it. But I, I, I also feel like the work that we're doing is the work. So mm-hmm. it, it's really just kind of creating the space for that. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of a, another historical question is that in your view, looking back over the last six decades, what are some of the highlights or things that you feel particularly proud of to be in the legacy of? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when you, when you think about that first decade, it's, it's remarkable as we've, as we've discussed that, that artists would, would invest their time and energy and reputation in, a, in this kind of unproven um, medium. I think you, you, when you, when you in speaking about the first decade, we automatically go to the workshops that it, that it gave rise to like Gemini and mm-hmm. Hollander and Landfall and Cirrus and, all of those amazing workshops that really defined the renaissance of, of printmaking in this country. So I feel like Tamarind has a real, a real hand in that evolution of the medium. And, and then there, then there are individual projects that you think of Joseph Albers and his interactions of color and mm-hmm. his exploration of printmaking came at a perfect time when he couldn't, he felt that, the screen prints that he had made demonstrating his theories of color only brought him so far. He could only go so far with interaction of color, but with lithography and the transparency of the inks, he could just move that much further. And so it's a perfect example of, of how the medium allowed him to go in a whole direction of, of, of exploration. And, and his work started at, at Tamarin with Ken Tyler and then went on to Gemini with Ken Tyler. So that's, it's kind of a nice lineage. And then there's also just all these other great figures of Louise Nevelson and Ruth Asawa and Gego and so many, so many kind of quietly radical (laughs) artists Mm -hmm. at the time making prints. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's such a, it's such a long history and you, you look at, at kind of the, the high points. And I think there are, there are those artists that span decades and span various, various trends and, and just withstand it or survive it all like an Ed Ruscha or, or Ken Price. There, there's so much, there's so many, there's so many amazing artists in our, in our archive. It's kind of hard to single out. Yeah. I bet. Few, but I guess I am also very proud of, of, some of the recent projects we've done where artists who have come to work with us have not, they're not printmakers. They're not, they're not knowledgeable about printmaking, but they're very knowledgeable about, about print and about image and reproduction. And, and they bring great insight into their work. So it's just, it's just kind of, it's just kind of exciting to see how, how, how an artist interprets the medium. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 100% on everything you just <laughs> said. I'm there with you. And I've always wondered to, for me, and I, I, I have a, a, a shorter lens than you must on this, I've really thought of Tamarind as something actually unique in the entire world. 
because of everything we've just spent the last 50 minutes talking about, the mm-hmm. education side, the gallery side, the collaborative side, the history in kind of saving lithography, truly, as a fine art practice, is there anything comparable to it in the world? Because I've never seen it, if there is. You know, as as a, as a such a hybrid institution as we've described it, it, it really is unique. It really mm-hmm. is a singular kind of approach. And the way that, I mean, there, there are definitely amazing programs to study printmaking. You know? Right. Many, many academic institutions have advanced degrees and graduate, graduate programs in printmaking. But what we're teaching that is different is, is the whole the whole ecosystem, the whole process of working in a collaborative setting, working as a professional printer, maintaining a business, maintaining a, a, a certain stance as a collaborative printer, that is what makes our program so unique. And and we do we do describe it as being the only program of its kind in the world. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, oh, that can't be true. <laughs> But it, it really is because we are, as I said, we're, we're teaching the technique and the skill, but we're also hopefully training printers to have a certain temperament and a certain collaborative way of working and, yeah. and, and also training them to, to be entrepreneurial, to take what they've learned here and apply it to whatever creative endeavor that they pursue. Yeah, because isn't there a sort of a business class in yeah. the education curriculum, which yeah. Yeah. I've known so many people with MFAs who would have loved to have even the slightest look into what it takes to survive yeah. on the other side. It's amazing that that is not taught. I mean, you, you hear about, I remember RISD offering kind of a, a professional practice or kind of a, a training class in that area but you're right it, it, it's not often part of a of a of a graduate curriculum we we teach a class I teach a class in the fall it's just for our students so it's it's a very small kind of seminar format and we bring in outside experts and mm-hmm. so at the end of their at the end of the class they've they've heard from all facets of Tamarin they they know about the inner workings of our organization and how we publish and why we document things the way we do and, and, uh, and, and how we break down the costs of, of, uh, of making additions, but they also work through and develop a business plan for a future workshop. And in part, it's not everyone's going to have their own workshop. I mean, that is not an economically feasible undertaking for, for, for many for many printers who go through our program, but we want them to have the training to do so. And we want them to have an idea of what it takes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes a couple of years before they're able to even consider starting a, a workshop. Other times they decide they don't really want to pursue the daily life of a printer, which is, which is draining and challenging physically yeah, um, and they decide they want to pursue their own work as as artists, and frequently will will return to their own studio practice as really good printers. But we want them to have that training again. That that if they if they want to pursue it, they they know how to break it down 
and they they have an idea of how to create a budget. So yes. that's that's what we train our students for. Yeah, which is just wonderful and and could give people an insight too even before they go out, whether or not that's the path for them. Right. I'm sure yeah. through that class, you're getting this little mini exposure to what would it really look like to be boots on the ground, printing, publishing, contract printing, all the different things that artists and and printers do. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Is there any special project or event or anything in the next few months or years that you would want to highlight that the podcast HelloPrint Friend audience might be keen to learn about? Yeah, yeah. Well, two two very different undertakings. One is coming up in February, and we are going to be installing an exhibition. Kylie Aragon-Wallace, our gallery director, is, is curating it, and she's doing a, a group exhibition of of the last several years of our Frederick Hammersley artist residency. So we've now worked with six artists as part of that residency program. Each one of them developed a major body of work and we'll show highlights from each of those six artists. And that'll be, I think just a great moment for us to (laughs) bask in. But then we're also, um, and this gets to kind of some of our, earlier discussions about the the ecosystem and and the this this visionary project that 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 June Wayne set in motion we are working with with our colleagues around the country to develop a, essentially a roundtable discussion to try to assess the health of lithography and printmaking mm-hmm. in academic institutions today. Like, are we right back to where we started in 1960, where there aren't trained professionals teaching? Are we right back to where we started, where materials are source are hard to source mm-hmm. and 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 it's it's not a, a, a well understood medium? I mean, there's definitely a large print community, and there's definitely a lot of interest in prints, but lithography is still somewhat vulnerable you hear mm-hmm. uh, we hear again and again how university programs have have cut their litho or they're getting rid of their stones they're mm-hmm. so complicated we just use plates so it's like no we have we accomplished nothing so in some ways it, it, it makes sense though when you think about the the life cycle of of any institution or organization it's been 60 plus years and a lot of the people that were originally trained and and, and studied and went out to, to teach lithography have have retired or passed on. And, and so it's a new generation, a digital native generation mm-hmm. and a, a different one, a different landscape. And so we do feel the necessity of, of maintaining a certain standard of, of printing and, and doing our best to shore up the the supply chain for materials and for well-trained educators. So we're, we're looking at the general health of printmaking and seeing where we can most effectively shore up those programs that might just need a little bit of training or might need a, a workshop or a skilled printer to go in and, and, and train some of the, some of the professors. So wow. that, that's, that's an undertaking, a big one. <laughs> but maybe that, that would be is, my legacy. That is, so important. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's so important because it does feel like it's a really almost contradictory time right now in that the internet has provided people access to understanding and self-teaching and just learning about lithography. You know, you can be in a small town in India and, you know, hundreds of miles from any lithography stones, but if you have connection to the internet, you can learn about what it is. And so, but at the same time, as you say, and I, this is something that I've witnessed as someone who has a lot of connections throughout the art world through the the practice of the podcast, particularly post-COVID, a lot of institutions seem to be using that as an excuse to shut down the workshops, the print workshops, because it was it was like, oh, well, we can't gather people together. And like it's kind of been on the outs anyway. And that's been really scary to hear as someone yeah. who loves print and wants to see it thrive and survive and flourish and continue to create beautiful objects and continue to bring people together what it has this unique power to do. So yeah, it's, I'm really glad that someone <laughs> is taking that on because I think it's a really important discussion to have. It's just, it's, it's also a way for us to just stay really well connected to, to our community, you know, and, and kind of find out what, what, what their challenges are. So we're, we're hoping, we're hoping to, we're hoping to have an opportunity to bring, to bring people together, whether it's virtually or in a small conference to, to discuss some of these things. Do you have a, a date or a timeline and, and will it be open to the general consumption of the public? You know, that's, that's a good question. Not yet. We're still, we're still kind of formulating okay. it. We are working with the Association of Print Scholars to try to get a handle on how would we even survey people, how there's maybe, we can identify, we can easily identify more participants than than we could possibly manage, but but we, we're hoping to do some kind of a, of a very focused roundtable with maybe 25 participants who are either teaching or have recently retired and can speak to programs. So we're kind of looking at, at major programs around the, around the, the U S and, and, and Europe. So, but I don't really have a timeline yet. We're, we're still, we're still formulating the, the plan. So check back. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big undertaking. So for sure. Yeah. I, I look forward to, to hearing more about it and if it's open for public consumption, participating or viewing or something, because it's a really important topic. Yeah, we have our our core programs that I mentioned earlier. We have a summer workshop in in July of every year, and we are trying to open up the workshop to to more opportunities with shorter shorter workshops, maybe concentrated workshops for educators, and and just it's such an investment of time to come mm-hmm. through our program, and not everyone can can do it for a year. So we're trying to also develop some programs that that offer some training or offer some, some community for for printmakers. So. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Well, where can people find Tamarind and follow Tamarind and get excited about what you're doing? Well, definitely come visit us in Albuquerque. That's, that's, we're, we're, we're very accessible and we love to give tours through our building. We are of course online at tamarin.unm.edu and we have lots of research and previous artist talks 
and short interviews with with artists on on our website. So there's quite a bit of quite a bit of material about artists that we've worked with, as well as our programs and things that are coming up and artists that we're working with. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Diana, for for taking the time to talk with me. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for your interest and for this wonderful podcast. It really, it really does, really does speak to the to the community and and the communal nature of this medium. Oh, thank you. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Sayare Rafai, an artist and activist working in Tacoma, Washington. We talk about learning to print by hand in a skate shop in Oaxaca, the importance of friends and mentors, doing research into NAFTA's impacts on artists, and moving big presses. You won't want to miss it. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest is Diana Gaston, director of the Tamarind Institute. We talk about how one becomes the director of an internationally renowned printmaking enterprise in the first place, the ambitions of the Institute's founder, June Wayne, to save the medium of lithography, and if it worked, what kind of research is done at Tamarind, and working with some of the most prominent artists in the world. You won't want to miss it. This episode like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.